0: The Kern Institute Podcast Network. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Medical Education Matters. I'm Michael Brown, and I'm joined today by my co host, Jeff Amundsen. We are, hello, hello, Jeff. We are continuing our series about technology in medical education and doing a lot more exploration of artificial intelligence and large language models. So today we're talking with futurist Dr. George Kubik from the University of Minnesota School of Education, their Department of Organizational Leadership, Policy and Development. Uh, Jeff, the future is now, is, is that right? Is the future now? Well, I think it's always fleeting actually from my perspective, so okay. maybe now, maybe now. Maybe now, or, or in fact, now. <laughs> maybe. Well, welcome, Dr. George Kubik. It's so great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Michael and Jeff. I appreciate the invitation to be here with you today.
0: So, George, I I want to start with you giving us some context. Um, It sounds super cool to be a futurist. Uh, Can you tell us what it actually means and a little bit about your background? Uh, Presumably, there was some past that led you up to being a futurist.
1: Well, I'm the ultimate eclectic, uh, a very great generalist. Um, I was raised in Europe, Russia, uh, Pacific Rim, uh, across the United States and a couple of years up in Canada. So a little bit of a a variety of backgrounds there. Um, My undergrad was in pre-law economics philosophy my first degree was in artificial intelligence studied under Dr. Arthur Norberg, director of the Charles Babbage Institute for Advanced Computing Studies, the graduate school. And uh, I took my other advanced degree in essentially futures research and advanced systems theory within the department of education, organizational leadership policy and development. So already we're off into the pursuit of many different disciplines and backgrounds. Um, My work experience equally varied. I uh, worked for federal agencies, uh, Department of Justice, Office of Personnel Management, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I've worked in areas of administrative, science, technology, information, computers, was an executive for a number of years, and went into futures. And that was my uh, love of life. And uh, I was for a long time the only strategic futurist in the federal government. So, mm. A unique position. Created it myself, as a matter of fact.
0: So, what is a futurist? What does a futurist do?
1: Well, we look into alternative uh, possibilities, probabilities, preferences for the future. We, we look at what uh, trends are existing, uh, what opportunities we can create to uh, explore alternative futures. The one word we don't like is prediction, of course. Mm. We cannot predict. We forecast, um, we create, but we do not predict. Um, And that is, in general, the life of futurists. We're, as I say, very much of a a generalist occupation, uh, cognizant of many different disciplines and backgrounds. And um, we explore alternative futures in terms of different time frames, uh, extended present, as we uh, were talking about a little bit earlier. Uh, This might be day, week, month, year, etc. cetera. Uh, longer range for, uh, futures from uh, three to seven years, for example, uh, seven to 15 or 20 years, and 20 years on out. Uh, I think the longest project I had was uh, 150 years. And okay. a <laughs> enter a great deal of speculation at that point.
2: <laughs> it, it Indeed. So, so George, I got to ask at this point, um, given that it's not about prediction and for more about forecasting as you say given where you started in, in in your endeavor of being a futurist and thinking about all these different disciplines and specifically edu- education uh, in relation to this conversation was your how accurate was your forecast or how you know was the forecast? you know where did that actually end up did it rain <laughs> or 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 a lot from your perspective in terms well, of
1: the yeah. thing about futures, especially longer reign futures. And at my age, you'll probably be dead before the future comes about. So we're pretty safe. <laughs> uh, rather than strive for accuracy, um, there's an intent to, to create more um, versatility and options in human life. Um, how we think about the future is a very important aspect. There's a, a very, um, excellent book, Images of the Future, written by Fred Pollack, and uh, he looked at how images of the future are closely tied to the rise and fall of civilizations, Mm. and he found where there were strong images of the future, the civilizations tended to flourish, and where there were impoverished uh, views of the future those civilizations tend to fall rather rapidly. This is reinforced by Toynbee, the historian and others. So um, that's a good way to think about it. If we have positive images, uh, advancing images, possibility uh, images, it gives us choice. And with choice comes uh, enriched futures. An old um, saying from the uh, 17th, 18th century, opto ergo sum,
2: I choose, therefore, I am, and futures give choice that's 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 fantastic it's It's a lot to think about in there, so you know it, to focus on artificial intelligence and education, um, do you see this as a road where all things are going well, or as some people have sounded the alarm? many more bad things are going to happen is that is there are we at that point to be able to make a forecast about this
0: or what are you thinking i mean our our look at the future is certainly clouded i'm not sure a lot of folks envisioning a future of this are seeing such a, a rosy outcome and it's interesting to apply that question of civilization to the future of education
1: yes it is um one might suggest that that how we look at AI as a reflection of ourselves rather than the AI. Um, Myself, I'm a technological optimist. I've I've worked with AI for a long period of time and I found it's a tool, a means to an end, just like any other. It can be used for good purposes. It can be used for bad purposes. Uh, We see this in your discussions on uh, uh, cheating in education, for example. Uh, Dr. Harkins and I wrote a paper some years ago on the role of ethical cheating in modern education. And we said there's a class one form of cheating and there's a class two that we proposed. Class one is uh, abrogation of an agreement, an implied agreement, uh, between the student and and the uh, educational institution uh, that adheres to certain norms within the expectations of that institution. Uh, and it's tied in very closely with the, the forms of pedagogy. Um, uh, adopting uh, someone else's writing as one's own mm. is uh, very verboten. Uh, however, in the postmodern world, that, that view, that perspective changes a bit. Because here we are in a classroom situation where we are expected to adhere very tightly to non-use of personal digital assistance or use of the wiki or any other research tool that might be electronic, predominantly. Uh, however, when you get out into the working world, those are accepted norms. Mm-hmm. Is it cheating to do this on the job? Probably not. Is it cheating to do it in most cases? conventional, classical educational formats? Probably yes. Uh, So a very fine line is being drawn there. And unfortunately, we don't recognize the latter uh, as much as we should and and
2: could. Yeah, that's an interesting point I've wrestled with over the years as I saw technology. Uh, First, for me, it was Um, the iPads that that the school districts were were given and then this individual to the individual students for individual learning and it was interesting inevitably we always see them sitting to two students sitting together looking at an individual iPad right or right sharing that technology experience and I remember early on you know it's that you know do it yourself do it yourself approach and then I started really questioning that approach like well, they're actually collaborating, and isn't that what we, we want to have happen? Um, so I, I eventually started even backing off my more traditional thinking about the use of technology and, and embracing it more as well and saying, hey, if they're going to do it, I might as well help facilitate the usage rather than trying to say, no, you can't. So that's a, that's a, I think it's a very timely, and a very timely point too, George, regarding, and now I see uh, even at our institution, the uh Syllabi include, uh, you know, what to do with Chat GTP, is it? And, you know, so write your, your, your statement about, you know, how it can be a tool and, and what standards and norms we should set for that.
1: There's an old story about Einstein. A reporter approached him one time and asked him what his telephone number was. And Einstein thought for a minute, and then his traditional response, he smiled. and said, sir, I, I don't know what my telephone number is, but I know where to find it. <laughs> Perhaps that's the greater skill here.
2: That, yeah. Then that's so now that seems to be touching on the humanistic component uh in this equation of technology as a tool plus the human and then plus interacting with humans. And I think you kind of I was looking at uh which publication was that? Let me look quickly here. Um I think it was in relation to yeah, your work on I think it was actually your, your thesis, as I recall. Yes, uh, projected futures in competency development and applications, a Delphi study of the future of the wildlife biology profession. And uh, the overlap I saw with what we're doing in, in medical education um, is kind of the last paragraph in the abstract summed it up so nicely is that, uh, you know, using this Delphi process, you talk about, you know, key trends. And major competencies, and one was continuous learning and effective. And that was effective application. But what stuck out to me was um, the what was also important was effective networking, partnering with coworkers, stakeholders, customers, strategic thinking, and stuff along those lines. So it seems like you know, even then, you were emphasizing the the, the, the skill building of human interaction and how to deal with that. So is there, if you given more thought to its importance now versus then? Well, we can reflect back on um, the work of Chen back
1: in about 1992. And what he studied was how digital technology is replacing human memory. Hmm. And that's in effect what we're doing very quickly here. Uh, the ancients relied on the uh, use of memory transfer to convey collective knowledge. However, uh, we face a dilemma, a paradox if you will, um, the dilemma is this, um, and, and Chen brought it out very nicely, he studied what he termed exogenic knowledge and uh, ontogenic knowledge. Exogenic knowledge uh, parallels the, the discussion that uh, Cleveland presents in that data and information are not synonymous with knowledge. Now. If you look in many scientific papers, you'll see a rather murky, cloudy distinction if there's one made at all in some cases. Um, but Chen said, you know, ontogenous knowledge is that knowledge which I've interiorized by virtue of who I am, by how I perceive it, the context I've received it, how I've constructed it, my past experiences, etc., cetera, um, as opposed to data and information which are exterior events. Recordings of signals basically and interpretations and classifications. Um, now, in the case of endogenous knowledge or ontogenous knowledge, um, we're rather limited as biological systems. Uh, he traced this back some 2000 years ago to the time of Athenian schools, and he compared the cohort then in a particular class, H-court cohort, with. Uh, um, I believe an age cohort in uh, Boston, in a public school. Okay. Is, what are the differences in cognitive ability? How do how do we differ in what we can memorize, et cetera? And he found there was essentially no difference. And that's not astounding because we have not biologically evolved in that. Right. So we wouldn't expect that. However, at the same time, the exogenous knowledge, the data and information, has off to a slow start, but then it suddenly gave us a hot wow. curve. It's exponentially increasing. Now the challenge for us here, and why we get into distributed competence and, and the use of AI, is how do we close the gap between that enormous amount of data and information that's available, and our human ability to assimilate it and mm-hmm. use it. And that presents a major problem today. And it's gonna get a a, a great deal more uh, more stressful in that uh, instance.
0: The advances of our knowledge and what we can know and what we expect students to know is something that struck me uh, reading 2005 biography of Robert Oppenheimer, which I'm, I'm just about finished and hearing his major contributions to quantum physics and recognizing, oh yeah, I remember that from high school. That what he was, you know, what were the bold and cutting edge and controversial findings in the 1920s, uh, you know, uh, 80 years later are things in every standard textbook. So we have that, that particular challenge of, of our growing knowledge. It also strikes me that AI blurs the line between this internal knowledge and external knowledge there are certain things we've expected our medical students to know off the off the you know on the tip of their tongue in, immediately basic science mechanisms for how the human body works and other things and then to apply that to a patient's particular situation and of course we don't expect the med student to know all the particulars from the patient who comes into their office that's something that they need to gather in the moment or review from a chart and then combine those two things together but it strikes me that as our knowledge grows AI's ability to synthesize things both allows us to instantly look up whatever basic science or other clinically relevant information. We don't have to have it memorized as much, but also could offer a summary of what a patient presents with. So all of a sudden, this idea of what I need to know versus what I can find out becomes blurred. That's in clinical practice. I'm wondering. When it comes to the classroom and education, are there ways that we can take advantage of that and these new tools that allow us to offer similar advances in education as we might see in clinical practice?
1: There's a, a variety of ways one can approach this. One is through the use of, of, of course, the old uh, computer-assisted instruction. This was a remote, uh, pardon me, uh, uh, rote memorization assistance, basically. And it was testing and uh, against norms. And um, one can teach that way, and many pedagogical institutions still do that. Um, I'm reminded of an old story about, again, Einstein, as he was proctoring an exam in Princeton, uh, advanced physics. And he gave out the exams personally, and One of the students in an attempt to make a few points with the professor uh, uh, raised his hand. He called him over and he says, Professor, uh, uh, do you realize these are the same questions that you asked last year? And Einstein smiled. He leaned over and looked at the exam. He says, yes, sir, you're quite correct. But just this year, the answers are different. (laughs) Now, what does that pose for your medical students? Uh, In a very fast changing environment, what are the new competencies? Are they the rote memorization? What are the basics? Um, what is the the uh, implications of uh, what are the implications of performance work? Uh, back in about 1997, the U.S. Army Research Center created the TED system. It was uh, turbine engine diagnostics, and they developed a, in essence, intelligent tutoring system that was quite advanced for its time. And it equipped soldiers from novices to master mechanics uh, with a tool that would enhance their ability to um, diagnose and repair turbine engines on Abrams tanks. And maybe this doesn't sound like much, but I had an opportunity to consult with them down there. And they took me in the back room, which is a huge place. And they said, we'd like you to repair this Abrams tank. And I said, well, I've never seen an Abrams tank. And they said, that's not important. And they hooked me up to an intelligent tutoring system that was very proactive, mixed initiative um, uh, environment. And within a few minutes, I was diagnosing and repairing a turbine engine and part of the transmission. And I performed it as a master mechanic. Now think of the extrapolations into the professions of these kinds of uh, tools that will amplify and augment human potential for work. Uh, In the broad sense, these are called performance wear or or, um, performance enhancement systems, electronic performance enhancement systems, Geary, uh, um, Branslow, others have have, uh, worked in this area quite extensively. Um, And it presages a, a, a question that is going to arise very quickly, And that is, do we have the right forms of pedagogy these days? Mm -hmm. Um, We are used to uh, learning leading to performance, and this has created ever wider float times between learning and performance. Uh, Extended periods of professional education, for example. Now, is there a way of using performance wear and, and performance enhancement systems to reduce this long period of, of uh, education and learning, training, to zero. Can I perform as a medical professional in a, a um, very um, journeyman role using a performance system? And we see this reflected in the military in the uh, uh, RoboDocs tutoring systems, where they enable um, corpsmen to go out and do some major medical work without that type of uh, educational background. Uh, We call that, uh, Dr. Harkins, uh, performance-based learning Mm -hmm. where performance and learning are simultaneous rather than learning preceding performance. Can you do this with everything? Probably not. Can you do it with a great deal? Probably yes. And we need to start looking at those and that suggests that maybe we need uh, new and different competencies.
2: That's interesting. Is that related then to your concept of leapfrogging? Leapfrogging. Yep. Yeah.
1: Leapfrogging allows us to jump ahead in in uh, uh, many different um, application arenas uh, and professions uh, because we're going to need this. We we don't have the time, the energy, the resources, etc. To Um, train and educate for ever longer periods of time. And then we look at the half-life of the knowledge once the individual gets out of the system. And that's rather short. And it's shortening.
2: That's a great point to bring up, George. Actually, I I was just thinking about this today, and it's something I was aware of uh, years ago. I think the general point I heard was, you know, you spend four years getting a degree. By the time you graduate, the first two years of information is outdated. So I think that gets to your point. So what competencies do you think would, would be tied to this process of leapfrogging, I guess?
1: Well, we've been exploring that a bit, or I have been. Um, and competencies are basically uh, the ability to perform one or more tasks successfully and with a high degree of uh, leading-edge skills. Uh, we look for this in terms of KSA, uh, traits, attitudes, motivations, experiences, etc. They all come together for that. Um, I'm going to throw out some wild cards. Uh, you'll get many different answers from many different people. And I'll throw out four that you probably haven't heard of. Um, one is anticipatory leadership. All life forms are anticipatory. Uh, Only humans have the strong anticipatory capability. That is the ability to integrate um, intent, um, teleogenic, as as the Greeks called it, uh, capability, to create new purpose, to work towards those purposes. Um, That's something we have been missing a great deal in our capability. And we can do this by, in part, by uh, the ability to look ahead to alternatives, to create those alternatives. Um, we live too much in a extended present. At uh, one time I read an article that said long-term planning in the United States in most businesses is on an average of 11 and a half months. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, right, right. Uh,
1: And we have to ask ourselves, uh, in contrast, the Japanese Ministry of Trade, which is a quasi-public-private organization in Japan that sets uh, strategies for the nation. It's 150 years. Right, right. Chinese, we've heard more and more frequently, they're looking at a longer-term evolution here as opposed to our shorter term, and there's not much question how some of that may play out. Uh, So we need to have people that can... um, uh, look ahead and work with, and be comfortable with alternative futures. Uh, that's more difficult than it sounds, uh, but we need that competency, if you will, in all of our people. Um, another one is sense making.
2: Are you? Have you ever attended a course in sense making? I. Not to my knowledge, maybe some variation of it, but uh, what, what is it I've to you? I've never seen it taught. S- sometimes
0: nonsense-making, but uh, not <laughs> sense-making.
1: Um, sense-making um, is rather important, uh, even though we don't teach it. Um, how do we make sense of what we are doing and what we are going to be doing or what we could be doing? Um, but we need to develop multiple perspectives of systems complexity and organization. We need to see it in different ways to be enriched. Um, there are maybe um, three primary domains for that. We have a wonderful system uh, we call science. It's a Newtonian, uh, Laplacian, uh, Euclidean-based system, and it works quite well, thank you very much. <laughs> but as uh, Sir Thomas Kuhn has pointed out, it's, it's getting a little frayed around the edges. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we have the entry of uh, postmodernism, and here we're looking at, at something entirely different. Um, uh, the modern science, modern ways of thinking are, are essentially deterministic and ultimately predictable or explanatory. Right. Enough information, we can accomplish this, and and ultimately predict as if it's a trivial system. Trivial mm-hmm. meaning you backward, forward. Um, A non-trivial system, though, is indicative of of, uh, deterministic, but non-predictable systems. Mm -hmm. And these would be uh, examples would be uh, chaos theory, Mm -hmm. um, uh, complex adaptive systems theory. And they um, imply that uh, you have what are called emergent or Pregogenian systems. And these systems are addressable... But they're not predictable in nature, not predictable in detail, at least. Uh, But you can work with them and understand uh, complex phenomena. Um, I've I've Snowden, for example, compares them to the old story about um, Dracula. Dracula was not dead, nor was he alive; he was the undead. Well, emergent systems are the unsystems. Okay the unordered systems. Uh, We understand them by virtue of their difference. They're not ordered systems like Newtonian systems, they're unordered. And then you have disordered systems, which for want of a better word, are called teleogenic, uh, a phrase I use, Mm -hmm. uh, means they're purposing systems. And you see this in the writings of Eric Yonch and Wolf and many others. How do we um, understand systems that are based on intent and purpose? rather than on data and information. And it's a big leap, but it's an important one. Um, why do I use different words for this? Uh, you may be familiar with a linguistic um, uh, principle of uh, the superior whorf okay. uh, And basically it says in order to understand a complex phenomena, you need a language to deal with it. Uh, neologism are our example be old words used in new ways or new words used Mm. in new ways. Um, So it it determines in a way our way of thinking and understanding. And that's what these uh, sense-making systems are for. We can understand in different ways and we can act on it in different ways and we can project in different ways. Um, The uh, systems there is, Churchman once wrote that intelligence can be defined by our ability to conceive and understand uh phenomena in different ways simultaneously and mm-hmm. be enriched by it yeah it's more of a, a skill or trait or attribute that we need today um another one would be positive divergence
2: positive and divergence if, okay gotcha yeah, so sorry this is our third third potential competency third one yeah yeah
1: um And this illustrates the contributions of positive creativity. Uh, Florida's book on the rise of the creative class back in March 2002, for example, is an example of this. Um, We need the um, ability to have dissent constructively in an organization. We need to educate people for this because it's not widely accepted in our society. Yeah, uh, right. I much as we profess that it's true, um, <laughs> yeah. no one wants to speak up in opposition to the dean at a public meeting. Yeah, yeah indeed, right? right. Yeah. Especially uh,
2: with promotion coming up. <laughs>
1: especially if they want some tenure. <laughs> uh, we can illustrate this with um, a crude example. It's called the Tenth Man Theorem, if you'll pardon my gender bias. The Tenth Man Theorem suggests that if you have 10 individuals in a room making a decision, And they all agree, it's the obligation of the 10th man, or woman, to disagree and investigate that disagreement and present it and challenge. And what I would suggest is we need more of that in our educational systems. Um, One of the items I give uh, as an example of a theoretical test, we all know what a triangle is, it's a uh, three-sided figure. straight lines interconnected to the vertices and their internal angles are always equal to 180 degrees. Okay on my test I ask given this definition are the internal angles 180 degrees, greater than 180 degrees, less than 180 degrees, none of the above or all of the above? Explain it. And the answer is all of the above. We're used to thinking in a creative simplification we call Euclidean thought. Well, Euclidean thought doesn't exist anywhere except in the human mind. It doesn't exist in nature. We know that space is curved in relation to mass. And therefore, any triangle has more or less than 180 degrees, but not 180 degrees. That's a theoretical construct. Um, if we look to um, uh, fractal geometries, we would understand that one could probably never have a straight line. Mm -hmm. And indeed the length of that, uh, the sides of that triangle are Mm -hmm. non-determinable. So we really can't define a triangle in those terms. So maybe it doesn't exist in those terms. So the answer would be all of the above. Gotcha. So what I'm saying is what we've taken for granted in our thinking is, is a creative simplification of sorts. It allows us to teach it easily, relatively, uh, to understand it relatively easily, and to regurgitate it on command in tests reasonably and understandably. Uh, it, it's a simplification that we have here that has been marvelously productive. But there are others, I've mentioned some of the mm-hmm. others in the uh, emergent systems and chelogenic system. Um, so we need to reconsider the role of positive divergence. Uh, originally, this came from um, the theory of positive deviance. I hate that uh, term, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was uh, used in nutrition studies.
2: Yeah, I agree, I agree. Like, the deviance kind of carries uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, uh, a, unfortunate
1: connotation in yeah, connotation. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> So um,
1: the third one, or fourth one, pardon me, um, goes back to our AI prop, performance work. We need to train and educate our people better in how to work with forthcoming ecologies of electronic performance enhancement systems. Um, We need to learn how to partner with these technologies, if you will. Uh, We need to uh, facilitate our learning and performance systems. Uh, and thinking, and we need to be able to deal with mixed initiative learning. How do we jump in and out of situations to exploit uh, performance where and some of the real advantages is you can do this real time. You don't need the long education flow. Right. Um, Let me give you a couple examples of that if I can. Um, Henri Poincare is Translation in the 18th and 19th century. He was a very famous uh, mathematician, physicist, uh, uh, philosopher of science, uh, very uh, well known. um, Famous for his discoveries in a number of different fields. He was referred to as the last great polymath. And a polymath is an expert in a variety of fields. And the French Academy of Science finally acknowledged that he was an expert of every known field of science at that time. Well, that was probably the last time that ever happened, because yeah. nobody can be an expert in every field today. And yet, as we know, in the medical profession, you need the mm-hmm. expertise in a variety of disciplines brought together to practice the profession. So Poincare was the um, last great polymath. Uh the last one to make significant contributions in every major field. I'll give you another example, a slightly different one. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Ferdinand Waldo de Mera. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him. You probably are not. No. Nope. A movies made about him. He was called The Great Imposter. And Ferdinand was a remarkable man. He was a civil engineer, a sheriff's deputy, a, a state game warden, or pardon me, a prison warden, and a real, well-known reformer. He was a doctor of applied psychology. Hmm. Uh, he's an anthropologist. He was a lawyer. He was a Benedictine monk. He was a naval surgeon and highly decorated one. He uh, performed some miraculous operations off the coast of North Korea. Um, he's an editor, a cancer researcher, um, and worked in tea as as a as an instructor in the professor role. Wow! Uh, wow. thing about I'm
2: you know, suddenly feeling uh, inadequate.
1: <laughs> yeah, I am too. <laughs> Uh, the thing about uh, Ferdinand was that he didn't have a medical degree. He didn't have a college degree. Turned out he never graduated from high school. <laughs> that wasn't bad enough. He never got out of grade school. <laughs> and yet he had the remarkable ability to step into all of these different professional contexts and perform immediately. He was able to yeah. bring himself up to speed so quickly for that particular task that he was acknowledged as performing with a high degree of expertise. Wouldn't that be wonderful for
2: all of us? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, for, but yeah, well, you know, maybe, maybe not us educators though, all of a sudden, if we have someone <laughs> like can just suddenly jump into anything without needing that formal background, I guess. Um, uh,
1: but again, but to yeah. go back to those four competencies, that's where your educators will come in because these are not, um, documented they're not um, uh, formal systems yet, right disciplines
2: right.
1: Uh, so, you, if you look at these four you won't find them anywhere in the educational system that I'm aware of
2: yeah and so then that brings me to you well know, what in, can we change in pedagogy what as a pedagogist might I do in the classroom that would and uh, you know enhance these competencies so to speak and, and you mentioned um, perhaps some learning theories that would have to come along with that. As a learning theorist, I, I come from more of an elemental processing, a Pavlovian, Skinnerian, uh, mm-hmm. the power of association kind of thinking. And, um, you know, of other theories are out there, that's for sure. But, you know, what, what might a teacher who is trying to enhance these competencies look like?
1: That, that is a very good question. I'm <laughs> <laughs> sure I have an answer for you on that one.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: The, the equivalent of, of the uh, Boldo Demera uh, doesn't seem to exist in the, in this kind of profession. G- gotcha. Uh, where um, extended periods of rather uh, static knowledge, as you know, uh, both yeah. of you, uh, when you want to change a uh, university course, you submit it, and it might take two years, three years, who knows. Uh, right. Meanwhile, the the knowledge base is... Uh, expanding rapidly with other individuals. Uh, the students are already bypassing the curriculum. And that goes back to our ethical cheating. Uh, Red Queen effect, if you're familiar with that from biology. Yes. And Red Queen effect essentially says that if you want to uh, exist and continue to exist as an organism, you have to change more quickly than your environment, mm-hmm. to be able to adapt more quickly. And it's this constant adaptive proactive mode uh, rather than reactive mode. Education is largely reactive. Yeah, right. And it needs to be adaptive and proactive and adaptive in the positive
2: sense of the word. So this conversation, and Michael, please speak up. I just have a million thoughts going here. It keeps pulling me towards what we focus on here at the Kern Institute about character um, and caring and, and, and excellence. In, in being a medical professional, um, so to focus on character, it seems you know. In looking at some of the articles you sent for us, I you know saw continuous learning was a word used that got me to thinking about being a lifelong learner. Um, you're even you're just then uh, uh, you mentioned attitudes um, being particular attitudes being important for the future. Um, I think also I saw words like. Um, Let's see. Role, role flexibility, strategic thinking, uh, dealing effectively with change and complexity, knowledge creation, innovation. So we're, so this is all stuff that you know, in some way or form, we talk about at Kern consistently, and they're also trying to infuse into our new curriculum, in a thread called the Good Doctor, and where we're focusing on you know character. Oh, maybe traits can be used or. Um, more about the strengths uh, of character. So, and, and I, I've seen this m- more nationally too, or maybe even globally, where I've seen lots of conversations around character development being an important thing to have because of all this division in the world and, and being able, as you said earlier, to deliberate in, in a civil civil way a, around civic issues. Um, so I guess I gotta ask, and do you see this as a character development process then to get not only pedagogists to do pedagogy in a way that promotes those competencies. And uh, I know, on the other side of it, uh, having learners that are um, able to live in that kind of uh, environment. Uh, and uh, as you say, to adapt too. So I'll, I'll leave it at that and just hear your thoughts.
1: Well, a couple of concepts here. One is the plasticity of the human species. We are constantly able to adjust ourselves to new situations, new environments, new challenges. Um, we, we constantly flip between um, what Berlin, the philosopher, called uh, um, the fox and the hedgehog. The <laughs> visual who can uh, focus in and make decisions and is probably a very good specialist. And at the same time, be a generalist, someone who can... Uh, back off from the situation. They're more opportunistic. Uh, They're generalist in nature. And Johansson adds uh, another concept uh, of the eagle. So you have the fox, the hedgehog, and the eagle. And the eagle is uh, the analog of an overview. Anticipatory. uh, The more wider perspective and understanding of what's going on around them. Uh, So we need to teach, I think, uh, or have developed, maybe that's an internal development rather than a teaching, um, create the opportunity for this to uh, have individuals who are comfortable in all three roles, mm-hmm. able mm-hmm. to simultaneously or quickly switch switch between and among these roles in their daily lives, in their uh, professional lives, in their home lives. Um, and you may recall, probably better than I do, uh, night and others have written about the original purposes of education. And okay. there three among the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks um, determined education was to be used for, one, creating a responsible citizen. Mm-hmm. Two, to uh, uh, develop a uh, informed citizen. And three, to prepare for the opportunity to work. Yeah. And to go towards that last one, right. the student out and in a job, um, some type of profession. Uh, and we tend to overlook, as you pointed out earlier, some of the aspects of um, development as an individual and as a responsible system. And that's probably where the current institute comes in, quite heavily, I would guess. Right, right, And uh, I can't help but feel that some of these uh, four uh, competencies might contribute to that.
2: Right, and and, it, and specifically we round the idea of practical wisdom, this idea of the ability to you know, do the right thing at the right time for the right reason. Some toss in the right person and right amount, um, but we focus on the right time, uh, right reason, and and those three aspects. So that actually tied into your kind of distributed competence, in my mind, that um, is, is it... Uh, um, it got me thinking about this idea of we closing this knowledge gap and then kind of this massive global network of uh, on-time delivery of my understanding to you so you can understand different, you know, to your point about the, the different perspectives and what have you. Um, but yeah, it got me to thinking, like, is it ultimately this, uh, how should I say it, depository of wisdom? sitting out there that we can eventually all tap into that's really going to help close this gap. i just kind of curious uh, your initial thoughts or your kind of initial reaction to, to that kind of thinking in terms of it's a, a wise, the, the, the uniform wisdom that is going to help close some of these gaps.
1: The wisdom is a, a very difficult factor to define, as you might imagine. Yeah. Um, and that's more difficult than than information data uh, knowledge. Right. By far. Um, when I get students, I, I teach um, honor students. Okay. Uh, and one of the things that I point out is, if it were me, I would require at every university and college a good survey course in philosophy. Okay. The Greeks, I don't know whether they were a really brilliant breakthrough civilization or if they're a giant Roshart test. for Yeah. <laughs> Um, But at any rate, they they divided um, philosophy down into three categories, um, um, ontology, epistemology, and axiology. Mm -hmm. And we study epistemology greatly. How do we know what we know and what do we know? Um, Ontology, we we kind of skip over because it's more difficult. And uh, ontology is what is real. Mm What is meaning? What is, we can go on. Let's go back to our sense-making illustration. Yeah, gotcha. And axiology is the third one, which we almost entirely neglect, except for a few minor departments. Uh, And axiology is uh, ethics, meta-ethics on the one hand, and aesthetics on the other. And great civilizations, that's been important. Um, Greeks used to say that, uh, classical Greeks, that, is not the answers you provide, but the questions, the quality questions you ask. Right. And we need to be, I think, um, engendering this capability in our students uh, to ask quality questions. Agreed.
2: Yeah. 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 My, my father taught me that, you know, it's it's that, it's that, me, that old saying, I, I, you'll see my emails that I sent you from the former president of the university of Chicago, right? The college is meant to, make you think yeah, not no. be uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah 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 exactly not being comfortable so i hear you i hear that in there too so michael you guys it looks like you have a thought
0: yeah so <laughs> you know pardon 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 to my uh, uh folks here and pardon to the listeners you know this is so much to take in there's so many opportunities for synthesis of the ideas you know it does strike me George, we had you on here to talk with a futurist and think about the future, and we have had such an enjoyable conversation delving into the past and considering the ways in which the past. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of uh, corrupt Shakespeare a little and say, you know, the past is prologue. Uh, thinking that way, it also strikes me though that we are we're entering into a system of rapid knowledge change and and rapid technological change that perhaps means some of the lessons of the past are no longer applicable or the by the time we understand what lessons they have to offer we've moved on to something else and I'm wondering George uh, and maybe this is a good place to kind of wrap our conversation here are there lessons from the past and and lessons from the work as a futurist that teach us sometimes we need to slow down sometimes we need to, to stop our, our rapid push to the future in order to make sure we've taken the right lessons? Or should this be a headlong charge ahead as, as fast as we want to be led?
1: I think we're going to have to stay just ahead of the curve at all times. Um, rapid change is going to occur. Change occurs in, in, in four or five different formats. The, the speed of change, obviously, Uh, the acceleration of change, rate of change, Uh, the impact of change, which is great, Um, and its pervasiveness. And everybody's affected. Nobody escapes these rapid changes. We can put brakes on it in our minds, but that's not going to happen. Gibson, the uh, science fiction writer uh, in Neuromancer, wrote, The street finds ways. And as long as we have development, which we require as a species, I think, uh, we're also going to be accompanied by people who find ways that may not be the ethical way, or maybe may be a super ethical way. And ethics is something we, we need to teach more of, as we pointed out a few minutes ago, ethics and meta-ethics. Um, and what is aesthetically viable in our societies. Um, so as long as this Street is finding ways. This goes back to the ethical cheating. Students will they're they're ahead of the curve, usually ahead of my curve uh, in technology. And I've run computer centers, technology centers, but um, they find practical ways to accomplish a task. Now, our challenge is how do we do that in a constructive manner that benefits both the student and the instructor? Because we need to learn too. Right. And that's our challenge. But I do not fear technology. Um, You know, we talk about strong AI, weak AI, uh, the blur between, um, I'm reminded of uh, Searle's Chinese puzzle room. And it was a, a Gedanken experiment, a thought experiment. And he created a hypothetical room that was a black box. And people needed translations from um Chinese to English. And so they would put the Chinese in and out in the other end would come the English translation. Now was this a strong AI that could reason and understand what was going on or was it symbol, simply a symbol manipulator that could look it up and push it out the back door? Uh, these are black boxes, we don't know. Uh, and Machines are not the same as humans. We we are subject to many uh, sensory differences, many uh, experiences, uh, genetic predispositions. Um, That makes us different than machines, and that will probably always be true. Um, uh, The Turing test uh, aside, although we have examples of that that are very uh, interesting. Uh, Eliza, for example, Eliza was a, um, a chatbot that okay. provided psychological uh, advice. And you could uh, dial in and uh, submit your question on the computer, and it would engage in a conversation with you. And people felt, in most cases, immensely better. It was cheaper than wow. a psychiatrist, and, and uh, uh, seemed to do the trick. Well, Eliza was just a simple uh, feedback system that mm-hmm. took the questions they asked and put it back to another question. Uh, so we attribute intelligence in many areas that intelligence is um, not understood. Uh, we like to think we have a handle on intelligence. Indeed, Gardner, what, lists seven? Right. Uh, Stoner lists 373 types of intelligence. Uh, you know, right. what is intelligence? Um, We've commonly referred to IQ tests, which we use at the universities for screening in many ways. Shouldn't do that anymore, I guess. Um, But when Stafford Binet developed the IQ test, Binet wrote in his notes very specifically that IQ testing was never used to be used in the measurement of intelligence. It was to be used solely for the uh, assessment of cognitive disability. Gotcha. And yet we use it as a major measure, measurement of intelligence. What is intelligence? Yeah.
2: Very, very, very difficult. Good, a good example of of our the use, misuse, disuse, abuse of of, of technology, right? In, in, in that
0: kind of in that kind of context, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and basic questions of testing ethics. We want to use the test for the purpose it was designed for. Um, yeah. What, yeah. What does
1: a test demonstrate? It's probably. Uh, a regurgitation of, of memorized facts uh, very often. Right. Uh, multiple guesses. Um And yet, your clever students, they can think of many different answers, but they're going to provide the one the professor wants. They're pretty astute at reading that. They can read the body language when yep. the lecture is delivered. Yeah. Um, in, in my courses, I, I do not give written tests. Uh, oh. Uh, Right now, I'm co-teaching a uh, course in uh, um, futures research and uh, uh, heterodox systems approaches to climate change. And uh, what we do is I have a a co-instructor. We have a group project in which the students assess each other in their contributions, Um, and that's a project that they deliver jointly. We also have an individual one that they very, very short ones uh, that they develop and present. And these are all subject to questions and answers, both from the other students and from ourselves. Uh, kind of an almost an Oxfordian model that we mm. uh, try to get a very informal relationship. Um, and we find that you can readily determine who has done their homework and who hasn't. Now we don't care where they go for it. Uh, if it's a direct lift, obviously we have to uh, attribute, um, but the ideas, is it—is it, is it uh, cheating to get an idea on a source, many sources, and uh, develop those ideas? That's as opposed to a word-for-word quote without the quotation marks. Uh, and we try to explain that difference to them and help help them develop this sense of uh, ethics as a, an internal ethics rather than a school I think um, we have it also but uh, uh, can you test for uh, students engaging in these activities chatbot or something else that's almost impossibly detect, despite the uh, in my opinion uh, despite the uh, services that purport to provide the opportunity to check on the students uh, Uh, integrity in these
0: matters. Certainly someone is willing to charge for it and uh, will get a lot of money from schools purporting to be able to check it. So as our conversation comes to an end here, George, I'm wondering, you know, as you think about our educators and the folks who are listening to this, people invested in the questions facing medical education, are there a couple of take-home points you could leave them with, from the perspective of a futurist working in education? Uh, you know, especially I'm thinking of those educators who are seeing rapid change and thinking, "I don't know my role in this."
1: Well, one, we're all co-learners, yeah, and we're co-evolving. Uh, we're, we're engaging in in positive feed-forward uh, exchanges that uh, should develop us as well as the students. We're we're students in a way ourselves. And we need to think of using these mixed initiative resources that are available to us and worry a little less about uh, ethical and unethical cheating and a little bit more about, are we conveying a sense of the ability to see these phenomena in more than one way and know where to access quickly the assistance they need to accomplish a task. That's different than memorizing data and information. Uh, those are going to be transitory. They'll change very quickly in most cases. Uh, but the ability to access and apply knowledge quickly and to anticipate what situations uh, are desirable or undesirable and work to avoid those, um, that's going to be some real skill development. Uh, I don't know if that helps or hinders, um, but, but we'll see rapid change, and we can't stop it. We can't slow it down. We can't ignore it. Uh, it's going to be there. So the question is, how do we deal with it? How do we
0: exploit it? I think it opens up, it opens up those opportunities for educators to learn from their students. Yes. Uh, to embrace that co-learner mindset. And even to present it to students and say, that's what we're here to do together. We're learning together.
2: And I think that's a critical point, Michael, too, to to present it. Because I think oftentimes young learners have this sense of trying to stay within their lane, so to speak, right? Trying to appease. And I think it just takes that pressure. Oh, this is also a person, too, who's learning along with me, not someone who I necessarily have to uh, see as above me. Right. And I think when those barriers are broken down, there's that sense of relief of, oh, I can actually learn <laughs> kind of thinking. So, yeah, good points. I had a, um, a mentor. Um, Earl Joseph
1: was one of the great futures in the 50s. And we talked about the medical profession and we talked about what kind of doctor we would like to see if we had a difficulty. He said, well, you know, I'd like to see at least three physicians. One, a recently graduated medical doctor who has the latest in knowledge and information at their fingertip. A more experienced doctor who's been around the the horn a few times. And a computer. And they should be working in symbiosis. There's an old story by Greg Bear, um, Great Sky River in which the civilization had been decimated and each survivor was assigned an aspect. This was a collection of different uh, knowledgeable people, um, philosophers, educators, uh, uh, subject specialists, and their embodiments of, of their engrams were effectively embedded in these machines and they would hold conversations and debate what their next task was to be and what it was to, how we might accomplish it. And I thought that was a great analogy for what we need today. Uh, If we could sit in a room, not only with the professor, but Aristotle, Plato, uh, Weizenbaum, uh, philosophers, uh, AI people, and converse in a conversation with each of these aspects um, and be enriched thereby. to to not memorize, but to to learn the the basic perspectives of these different pieces of knowledge.
0: I think that's a a great point for us to end on here. And George, I wanna thank you for taking the time to sit in this Zoom room with us and consider these particular perspectives. Um, Perhaps through this whole series, we'll have enough perspectives that it will feel like there is that collection and diversity of knowledge all together in one place uh, for people to take in.
1: Fun for you as it was for me. It was fun. Thank it's you. a great earmark of a wonderful conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, on behalf of Jeff Amundsen, I'm Michael Brown, Dr. George Kubik. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for your invitation. Enjoyed the conversation thoroughly.